1: Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer here with Max Alinsky of Longform and Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. It's a lovely morning in Brooklyn, balmy 51 degrees. How's it going, guys? It's
2: going great. I'm in a good mood. I'm in Max a real good in mood. a good
1: mood. I'm in a good mood. Evan is in the same mood. It's, uh, it's sweet out it's here. It's a perfect day. Uh, <laughs> Who'd you talk to, Aaron? I talked to Sam Biddle, um, who is one of the two reporters at Valleywag which is one of the sites, it's a gawker site that covers Silicon Valley, which seems to be a very hot topic right now in the media. I watched, Silicon Valley? Oh, I watched the um, the Silicon Valley, the show, I watched the premiere of the show last There's night. There's definitely going to be a like uh, pseudo Sam Biddle character on that show at some oh, point. Oh, def- I'm, I'm waiting for it. Um, but Sam's a really interesting guy. Um, you know, he describes what he does as tabloid journalism, and I think he's the first person uh, who's been on the show who would describe what they do that way, and I think that's an interesting topic, and um, mm. he was very, very open in talking about it. So
2: Also, full disclosure, uh, we met him at South by Southwest. Yes. We were there doing the podcast. Bowling.
1: Went bowling. Bowled the game of my life. Oh, my God. Yeah, you
2: had what? Two strikes? Yeah. Uh, what?
1: <laughs> two strikes, I think. I think the, I had three strikes and a spare. Yeah. It, oh, I thought it was two strikes. That I was like four a, That was a that was also like a weird like uh, drunken. You didn't get the full due for how
2: good you were bowling because no I know, no paying one, attention. That's why I'm going to keep bringing it up anytime I see any yeah. of those. Aaron, uh, Evan's quite focused on that, getting his due for that bowling performance, which was amazing. Two strikes is really good. That we place should have was, a bowling sponsor this week. Do we have a sponsor this week?
1: Yeah. What's that bo- like terrible bowling place in Manhattan that were like the Party Bowl place? Well now, well now they're. Sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Who is our sponsor? Our sponsor is Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple way to get an email newsletter going, recommended by me.
2: Take it away, Aaron and Sam.
1: Hello. Welcome Sam Biddle. Thanks for having me. Where are you coming from?
2: I'm coming from uh, the the very dimly lit Gawker offices in, uh, in Soho, just right oh, over the river.
1: Very nice. Very nice. Um... A lot of people who come on the show are uh, like long form magazine journalists. And I think that job is kind of well defined, but uh, right. your job is less well defined, maybe to our readers. So you are now a reporter for Valley Wag, right. which is a gawker yeah. subsite. What does Valley Wag do?
2: Valley Wag uh, provides, a, a, I, I would hope, a counterbalance, uh, countervailing force to. Sites like TechCrunch uh-huh. uh, and even mainstream newspaper uh, tech coverage. Uh, it focuses on Silicon Valley, but also the New York tech scene, um, and it provides a critical, at times harsh and deliberately insulting uh, view of that of that coddled world. So, for
1: someone who say like is not exposed to the complimentary sure. tech coverage or the critical tech coverage like what is what is the conflict there? What is what is the sort of underlying basic tension between those two sort of rival journalistic
2: camps? So almost all coverage of tech, whether it's consumer tech or startups or you know just on the business side is promotional. Companies, whether you know big and small, will send press releases or develop personal relationships with bloggers, reporters, editors. And then uh, the publications in turn say, "Here's something that could be the next five billion dollar idea." That's sort of the the subtext, um, yeah. and so it's all almost it's all at the very least neutral. Usually, airing on the side of uh, you know utopian optimism uh, that you know every idea has a chance, every idea might change the world. Um, we're, we're dealing with geniuses across the board, um, and you know, and sometimes that's definitely the case. Uh, but most of the time it's not, and so uh, you, you don't get people who are willing to say, "I'm going to pass on this because it just doesn't make any sense." We don't need a, a fifth dry cleaning pickup service from your phone in San Francisco, right? I, I think sites like TechCrunch, which deal, which you know, for people who don't read TechCrunch, is a, a pretty much by the by the numbers trade uh, publication for Silicon Valley, and they their philosophy has always been, "We'll." Write almost anything about any company, um, because they they prize uh, being first and having an exclusive on uh, on a company or a company announcement over everything else.
1: I mean, it's interesting to define what you do so much in opposition to something else. Let's let's sort of like rewind before sure. uh, to like um before the uh, the tech era. Um, is this an extension of how like? Business reporting has always gone down, or is there something unique about technology and the way it's covered that this is sort of emerged as an issue?
2: I, I think it probably flows right out of you know, very old business reporting. I mean, the Wall Street Journal was always a, a pro-business paper, right? Uh, you know, and, and still is. And then uh, you know, the the contemporary uh, offshoots, which cover uh, you know, maybe heavily startups, are the same. Um, you know, they they exist not just to cover an industry but to advance it. Um, because I guess, you know, existentially, if people stop coming up with new companies, they won't have anything to write about. So what, what lights up your like story, the storyboard in your mind? Like what's (laughs)
1: like, what's, what are the sort of like elements of something that you're like, yes, this is a Wag
2: story. Oh man. Um, I mean, any kind of bad behavior, because I mean, Valleywag is, and just like gawker.com, they are both tabloids. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's what it is. People often say, oh, you know, yeah, right, you guys are ready for a tabloid. I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll be the first ones to admit it. The best story that I think we've covered uh, so far, it'll be almost a year since Valleywag was restarted yeah. um, last spring, was the Sean Parker wedding, uh, the, the Facebook billionaire who had his uh, his, his nuptials in uh, a redwood, an endangered redwood uh, habitat. Uh, whenever someone is completely removed from these standards of behavior that everyone else is uh, is, is held to—that's a great value like story. Um, uh, I mean, okay. you're dealing with people who who live in a fantasy world, um, both of in in terms of what makes sense as a business and what is okay behavior for a human. I mean, you you have people who will uh, I, there was one there was one yesterday that that will help people find uh, you know get paired up with private jet pilots, and this is you know that this could be a viable business on its own is. Is is nutty, um, but then and then you have them applying the same sort of uh, wacky senses of judgment to their private lives. So there's it usually goes both ways. How much of that
1: is like let's take that that Sean Parker wedding story, which is a story that was reported widely, you know, probably up to the New York Times, right. and you know, but uh, your coverage of it was quite relentless and quite extensive how much of that is original reporting versus sort of scouring
2: the internet for other things and sort of compiling them into a stream of Sean Parker hate? Right. Uh, I like to think it's both. Uh, and and I, I think that something you can deliver that's original is being willing to say, this guy isn't just having an extravagant wedding. I mean, he, there's, he's demonstrating sociopathic tendencies. I mean, there's this, there's really a personality a character issue here. And that's something that the Times can't say and, and, and won't say. I mean, we're all looking at basically the same uh, state, California state documents. Uh, you know, they, they let out a, a a report about the extent of the damage after the wedding. Uh, you know, in, in in that case, the state wouldn't talk to me. I don't think they would really talk to anyone. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it is a lot of taking the same material and it's a matter of what you do with it. You know, w- are you willing to say that this was not just a, a very fancy wedding but that it was a reckless wedding that it was indicative of uh, you know it, bad taste gone awry and that Sean Parker is maybe not maybe a bad guy it, it's that sort of willingness to take an original tone and to say what papers like the the, the times or the post or the journal won't um, that I think Set us apart, and it, yeah, it does come off as relentless. And and I mean, we were, I was. Uh, does that make the entire project something of an op-ed? Yes, for now. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would I would like to see the site have more on the ground reporting. We're you know we're about to hire someone on the West Coast, which okay. I think will make that a lot more a lot easier. So um, the site
1: is currently you and Natasha Tiku. Yeah. When when you think of it as an op-ed in that way, whose opinion is Valley Wag? The
2: voice is one that says this industry does not deserve the universal praise that it receives. It doesn't deserve the pass it receives from people who should otherwise be criticizing it. And it's a lot of overgrown, you know, uh, entitled manchildren pulling price tags out of the ether and passing them around. I mean, it, it, it is. Considering Silicon Valley worthy of contempt is, is, is the sort of first premise that we, that we work from. Not that it's all bad at all. I mean, I, I, I wrote for Gizmodo for three years. I, I really do love and am fascinated by technology. Uh, you know, I, I'm not advocating some return to you know, the, the Victorian era. It's just that it's arrived at a point where it is the new overclass. Uh, it, it is what Wall Street has been or was for so long. And will demonstrate the same excesses and the same poor behavior. Um, so, just you cannot state that enough. That that is the the editorial. I mean, that certainly
1: echoed. Uh, we had uh, Kevin Roos on the show a few weeks ago, right. um, who recently left New York mm-hmm. and stopped covering Wall Street in favor of moving to California and covering California. And I read his book, and the most notable thing in his book is how. Boring. The life of a junior analyst is right. how incredibly sedate it is. There's a level to which the money is still there, but the it's not the Michael Lewis uh, Wall Street culture Wait. of the '80s. Yeah, and some of that stuff has moved to Silicon Valley. Do you see that culture and and the business as being inextricably intertwined?
2: I do. Yeah. It, it's it's because you move. You don't move out there for the money, although the money is good. Um, even if it's the hope of stock options or equity, which probably won't be an immediate payoff, you're going out there for the perception that what you're doing is cool. No one is under the impression that Wall Street is cool. People on Wall Street don't think they're doing anything cool. They're doing it for the money, and they're fine with that. And frankly, I'm fine with them being fine with that. They're at least open about it. You go to Silicon Valley because you think, I'm going to be part of something that's going to change history. Uh, That ends up maybe being an app that lets you hail a cab the, the the notions that you're part of something world historical and really trendy and you know, sort of sexy and in, in, in how cutting edge it is and willing to experiment. So you're, I mean, you you get to say I'm part of this gold rush. It sounds cool, you know. I, I mean, I, I I get the draw
1: as part of a sort of a um, a media counter narrative to that narrative. Where does that original narrative trickle down from? I mean, how how does it come? mean, this is this was in Roos' book. How does it come that those same Princeton and Harvard graduates that were once aimed at banking are now moving to Palo Alto? Wh- what media sort of ta- taught them that?
2: It was the same media that printed Google's don't be evil motto uh, over and over and over again without saying, well, does that? First of all, does that even make sense as a as the motto of a company, and are they living up to it? Uh, I mean, that, that that was propagated without any kind of skepticism. That that a company, like Google, was like you know Woodstock uh, of of big tech. Um, I mean, now I think it's it's clear to everyone that Google is you know is, is just another AT and T uh, without scruples. And again. That's almost sort of fine if you're just willing to admit it, right? I mean, AT and T does not say that it's trying to change the world or that it's not trying to be evil. It's a big company with big plans. But um, I mean, that that myth that giant tech companies could both be giant and creative and noble. Apple also, I I think Apple and Google are probably the two biggest. They're probably the originators of of that myth. Um, You know, that that someone like Steve Jobs was more. Leonardo da Vinci than uh, you know uh, Andrew Carnegie or something. I, 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 they were somehow given a pass their poor behavior, which there was a lot. In the case of a guy like Steve Jobs, was totally eclipsed by all the sexy, uh, you know, high budget uh, TV ads you know, for iPods yeah. and stuff. I mean, uh, and, and was not reconsidered until really his death. But by that point, you had a generation of kids who wanted to be the next Steve and that set in motion. Things that are still, I think, uh, tugging on the the minds of teens. You know, they, they they still want that. That's still a very real myth to to subscribe to, you know, to believe in.
1: So, you seem very confident in, in that in that sort in your your view, that worldview. Um, I'm wondering how you sort of came to that. Conclusion, like about your sort of your journey to uh, to to become a uh, a dissident uh, against sure. it. So yeah. you started at uh, Gizmodo pretty much shortly after you were in col- yeah. Out of college. Yeah. What did what did you want to do as a as a slightly younger man? <laughs> You're still a young man. Right.
2: Uh, I always wanted to to write for a living. Yeah. I was always you know and still am a pretty big tech geek. So that was just the stu- the the subject matter I was interested in uh, personally. And then I had a chance to write for a living about stuff that I was interested in. I mean, who would, who would ever turn that down? And it, and it was a great job. But towards the end, I started to get really frustrated, and it, and it started to sort of make me feel dark. You start to see that really cool new phone, not just as a really cool new phone, but you're dealing with the PR people on the other side who are trying to manipulate you and <laughs> manipulate a lot of people who are going to buy that new phone. You know, you, you read about, in the case of Apple, you read and research and write about all the you know, labor abuses that take place behind the scenes. You read a biography of a guy like Steve Jobs and dig deep into his life. Uh, just by uh, being exposed to the industry for a long time, you have to either decide, I don't care that this is really just like any other part of the of the economy, um, and that it's mercenary. Or you can say, I, this this bothers me. You know I mean because tech is looked at unlike coal mining or unlike the car industry. When it's it's all the same the same ideas, right? You're building shit and selling it. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what's what's wrong is marketing tech as something noble and beautiful and somehow exempt from the same criticisms of the rest of capitalism, right? I mean, it's still just designing, building, marketing commodities. So, I mean, I I think that I I got sort of burned by buying into it and covering it for so long without, you know, being willing to admit that to myself, you know, I I was, I would just get frustrated.
1: I'm interested in the very first thing you said, (laughs) I always wanted to be, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write uh, professionally. Yeah. And uh, that seems to be a fairly common um, thread among people who become professional writers, (laughs) but uh, your job is pretty unique. I'm assuming that you weren't like... What I want to do is like start a tabloid <laughs> where I like get into crazy fights with tech CEOs. So yeah. what?
2: That's uh, for sure. Yeah. What
1: what kind like what kind of writing um, interested you when you were
2: younger? God, any kind. I mean, there are there are some extremely embarrassing music reviews that I did in college. That thank God are. Very hard to find on Google um, you got to
1: watch out because there's people who you ha- you <laughs> have the right audience
2: to track your track I, you down I can't even find them sometimes yeah. um, but I mean you know that that you know there was a time when I thought oh, you know i'll I'll write for pitchfork you know yeah. I don't think I was I would ever have been good enough to do that but that was something that interested me you know sort of uh, arts and culture stuff uh, you know' I, I think I just wound up there by accident by a combination of being lucky and meeting some really amazing people who gave me a chance. Yeah. To cover tech, um, you know, if I had been uh, recently out of college and someone said, "Hey, why you know, do you want to get paid to write music reviews?" I, should, I would have said, "Great, that sounds fantastic." Maybe I'd be talking to you about something very different right now. But I mean, I I, I did sort of wind up here uh, without much of a plan. I was given a chance to write about things that I would have cared about even if I didn't have a job writing.
1: You've been in in working at uh, at Valley You've gone after many, many CEOs of companies worth many, many millions and billions of dollars. Um, Fairly like uh, personally to the point where there are often stories about people's uh, uh, maritable relationships, their families. uh, This is not business reporting. This is personal reporting. And I know that people have also, you know, that stuff does bounce back. the The longest um, article I read in preparing for this show <laughs> was not an article you wrote; it was a four thousand word screed against you. There've been a few of those, yeah. Um, that actually had some fairly like well researched information <laughs> about you that helped me prepare for this interview. But um, let's talk about that. There, there, there's a site called Pando Daily that uh, is um, run out of out of uh, Palo Alto. You you became involved in a feud with them, and and the article is a very, uh, very pointed statement that you that you and Nick Denton, who runs Gawker, are hypocrites, sure. and here are the reasons why, and here is the reason why this whole sort of project is full of shit, and right. it includes information like who your dad is, right? Um, what is that like?
2: <laughs> so that that uh, that article came out while I was home for. Uh, for Christmas. And I just I think I think I read it the day after. I just thought, man, what a sad way to spend the holidays, like writing yeah. <laughs> the, the Bible about me. If that's all people would like to spend their their time and that's what they want to build their career around, you know, have fun. It didn't bother me. I thought it was, you know, my my friends sent it around and we all sort of got a kick out of it. But, you know, I went back to work after that and everything was the same.
1: So, what in your experiences has given you pause? I mean, have there been moments where you've thought um, I've gone too far, oh, or yeah, yeah. um, like you tell me, like, sure.
2: Uh, well, you mentioned personal relationships. I mean, I I outed the identity of uh, Sir Gabriel, the co-founder of Google. Um, he was having a, an affair, and I, you know, I, I outed his girlfriend. Uh, and you know, Jesus, that, that's a fucking mess. He, he has two little kids. He has a, a wife, and so I, I I remember going home, being back in my apartment, and uh, a friend of mine who. Uh, whose opinion I care a lot about. She was really upset by the fact that I'd done that. Yeah, it made me think, and I I felt a little guilty, and I thought, should I have done this? I mean, I don't have have time to really always think, was that a good idea? You have to sort of autopilot uh, in in the guilt area, and uh, if if it it comes back, it comes back. Um, I would do it again. That was what I concluded. I would would do it again a 100 times, but it, it, it it was a moment where I stopped and, and really thought about how this was a person who was walking around somewhere in San Francisco right that moment and was probably having a very difficult day. On the other hand, it was someone who decided to have an affair with one of the most powerful men in on the planet. I mean, Sergey Brin, as co-founder of Google, is certainly a public figure. Um, he's one of the most public figures when it comes to tech. It's hard to respect the privacy of... Uh, Someone like that. I think th- even the notion of him having a private life after uh, living off of monetizing hours uh, is, is sort of silly. But again, that was my that's my job, right? My job is to find uh, and embarrass people in positions of power. And it was a hell of a story. And I'm uh, yeah, I would do it again tonight if I could.
1: So you said that you have to work on a certain autopilot, and I assume that part of that is. Related to the fact that these posts go up very quickly, um, and that there is a, a time pressure with some of these issues, that there are, you do have competition that are yeah. trying to get this on the internet. But beyond the sort of um, linear autopilot, is it ethical autopilot? I mean, yeah, that's aut- what I wh- meant.
2: So, how do you draw that ethical universe? So here's what I meant by by autopilot. I'm I'm a very big believer in sleeping on it. Right. If, if you're if you're worried about something. Take a day, and think about it. But if I took the time that is, that I think most people would agree is sufficient to say, you know what, I am completely sure I'm doing the right thing here. I'd still be working on the Sean Parker story. You know, there'd be a backlog of a million posts. You have to use a, a bunch of intuition when it comes to, is this an ethically sound story? Is this worth hurting someone's feelings? I think that I've developed a pretty good instinct. There have been plenty of times when I have decided not to write about something, uh, and and I look back at those times and I'm very glad because you know it's gratuitous or just hurtful for the sake of it, I don't I don't want value like ever just be mean for the sake of being mean. And I think sometimes advert, it, it drifts into that territory, and I, and I really try to stop that. But yeah, you know, I, I have to go with a sort of a, a gut game time call. When it comes to legal things, we are very lucky at Gawker to have a very robust and uh, patient and very experienced legal team who uh, who is there to help with that sort of thing. Because yeah, I mean, it's, it's my job to dig up dirt and spread it around, but not to uh, break the law.
1: What are times that you've come sort of to the brink and, and pulled back rather than pushing post?
2: I, I have uh, a folder of, uh, of photos of a, a tech figure and executive in their underwear that I just cannot think of any justification for posting. On on paper, it's like, wow, yeah, tech CEO and underwear, great. But then I think, you know, what am I really accomplishing? What is the sort of source for like, particularly for the most contentious
1: information that you've uncovered? Where is this stuff coming to you from? and, And what's your method for collecting stories?
2: You know, a lot of it comes completely anonymously. I don't I don't know who sends it to me. My best sources are all people I'll never I'll never know. I think a lot of
1: people may not know what like an anonymous like source Sh- on the internet sure. is. Yeah. Um
2: what like
1: this is like a weird um, email like hotmail address sent to like there, something
2: There there are plenty of services that let you send anonymous email from a disposable account. So you yeah. know, I'll get an email that's like <laughs> 60 characters of just gibberish, randomly generated letters and numbers at, you know, whatever.com, and it won't be signed. It'll just say, here's something I heard. That's it. And I can't reply because they won't read it. So it, it just sort of arrives there like, a, you know, a, a coin from the tooth fairy, and I can either do something with it or not. Sometimes it's not even enough to really act on, but that's how I get a lot of my good stuff.
1: I'm guessing, okay, so in the case of a photo, you can say whether this is a real or fake photo. But in the case of something that is not like a doesn't have like a nice attachment like right. that that proves it. Yeah. You've got this anonymous email sitting in your box. How do you go about vetting something like that?
2: If I get an anonymous email um, that says, I know that, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is cheating on his wife or I know that um, you know Sean Parker is embezzling money. I'm not going to post that. I mean, God, I would love to get those emails. So if anyone <laughs> knows that to be true, yeah. g- 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 you know, shoot me uh, a message. If I, get, if I get that message and it says, um, I work at so-and-so, look up these names, and, and there's sort of the beginning of a, of a trail, there's something to follow up. Also, if I start to hear the same rumor from what I can be sure are independent sources, it's not just the same person sending me the same <laughs> message from different accounts, that's sort of a corroboration by consensus, right? It's sort of a, a, a smoke, ergo fire kind of thing. I'm also working, and again, I'll be the first to admit it, with a lower bar. It's a site that, site that trades in gossip. So sometimes you present gossip as gossip. You're not saying it's true. Uh, you're saying, this is what I've heard, because you did hear it. You, know? uh, you have to sort of act like you, uh, you're at a bar and you overheard a loud conversation.
1: Does that devalue when you do have something like great and it is not gossip? Does that devalue it that you do have a lower bar and that, that you've been publishing gossip?
2: It certainly makes it harder to, to persuade a, a skeptic. Or, or, or a critic of the site who says, "Well, you guys post things that you're not sure true, uh, you know." And, and even if I say, even, even, even if I really do know something is true, but let's say it's coming from an anonymous source, I can't just say, "Come on, take my word for it." People who don't want to believe it aren't going to believe it. Um, I think that's just sort of a hazard of the site. And if you read Valleywag, you probably, you know, you, you know what you're getting yourself into, which is that not everything is going to be verified or verifiable. Um, if, if you Trust me as a editor of the site. You'll, you know, I guess you'll you'll be willing to take it on a little bit of faith. Maybe. I mean, what it sort
1: of brought up in my mind when you said that was there's an interesting sort of uh, doppelganger effect. You defined what this site very much in relationship to sites like TechCrunch right. that also rely heavily on gossip. In some ways, the tactics have sort of mapped each other. There's a yes. there's a um, eye for an eye element to it where you are both playing the same ball game,
2: but for very, very different reasons. Well, you know what's really funny. Um, there is a, a cottage industry of Apple gadget rumors uh, of uh, just, you know, minutiae about, um, you know, how big the screen will be on the iPhone 6 or whatever. And those are all sourced anonymously. It'll be like, you know, we have a source in China who says X, Y, and Z about the next iPhone. And that will be spread around by by publications you would expect at ha- who are, that are not tabloids um, pe- people are willing to believe complete gossip even from sources that don't have good track records when it's something they think is exciting and they want it to be true when it's something about them it you know there's there's a, a desire for that to be discredited um, I think there are a lot of people in the industry who don't want Valleywag to be believable because they might be the next one in it um, whereas you know everyone sort of is rooting for the Apple rumor sites because those are fun. Everyone can agree that you know, uh, everyone likes fantasizing about the next smartphone.
1: You know, Michael Lewis's book came yeah. out this week, and uh, I wouldn't even really call Michael Lewis a critic of mm-hmm. Wall Street, but Wall Street would credit. Right. We call Michael <laughs> Lewis a critic of Wall Street, and a lot of the response that I've seen from—I mean, this is a response by sort of crazy people, so yeah. take it with a grain of salt. But a <laughs> lot, a lot of the, a lot of the response has said like, "Well, this is a system." you would have to be a fool not to try to game the system. It's not <laughs> capitalism if you don't use every tool you can right. to game the system. So what kind of like um, single-A baseball do you think we're playing <laughs> that we would not try to manipulate the yeah. market with um, speed trading?
2: Right. Um, That's why I love Wall Street, sort of, that they would just say that, right? No one would ever admit right. that in Silicon Valley. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> but they – the, the similarity is that there's a foundational myth, and there's become a foundational myth with regards to Wall Street, mm-hmm. that uh, people who produce, who, people who own publicly traded companies have a moral responsibility to do anything in their power to make money yeah. for it. And trickling down, people who run hedge funds have a moral responsibility. Everyone's got a moral responsibility yeah. to do, and there's an element to these tech companies that it's not the same myth, but there's an underlying uh, mythology that says we have a secret. There's a secret formula to doing the world better, right. and we've got that. Our system works. Your system does not oh, work. Yeah. It seems like it's easier to find out that someone is cheating on their wife than it is to find to, to sort of reveal the truly. Uh, fraudulent parts of that mythology. What is the way that the sort of larger ideas get chipped
2: away at? It takes time and I think it's a gradual process of debasing and you know, just sort of fucking up the glamour, the infallible glamour of Silicon Valley and of tech as something that is uniformly positive. That is, an, is, is It is an inherent good. Technology is, is virtuous. Um, if you show that that isn't true little by little i think that myth starts to fade i mean it, it you there's been no watergate moment in tech or maybe the you know maybe maybe uh, all the snowden stuff will be looked back upon that way but um you start to chip away people's faith uh and people start to feel i i i would hope um a little disenchanted with uh with the whole thing, uh, you know, if, if, if you can mount up even small examples of these people being full of shit, or these ideas not working, or people getting something they don't deserve, or whatever, I'm hoping that the aggregate is enough to to spoil that myth a little bit. Um, and, and when I say spoil, I mean, I, I don't, it's not like I just want to, like, fuck up someone's picnic. I mean, I, I, I think it's just bad for the economy, for, for the political economy, for so many smart people. To be wasting their time with such trivial stuff. I think that it's great to encourage more people to study science and computer engineering and math. Uh, but to then take those people, gifted people, and, and have them work on like another way to send 10 second videos from phone to phone. I mean, what that's it's you're squandering them. I would consider ValleyWag a success if even a few people reconsidered uh, jump, you know, taking that taking that route with the gifts that they have. The two biggest technology stories of the last
1: year, to my extremely limited memory, are uh, Snowden is right. the biggest story. And the second biggest story is the failure of the healthcare.gov website, right. I would say. yeah. And what does it mean when people who are personally ridiculous have such a... Stranglehold on the talent that is necessary that is truly necessary um, because this technology is really necessary to effectively running the country. We've proven that now. Yeah. Um, I mean. Is it are there elements of a necessary evil here? How do you view the parts that, you know, it's easy to like um, to throw away the like um, app that like tells you uh, when someone you're in a room with went to the same high school as your girlfriend. Okay, great. Throw it away. Yeah. How do we how do we then regard the things that we can't throw away, like having a website for our national health care system?
2: Well, look, I, I think the the really upsetting thing to me about the healthcare.gov uh, fiasco is that it played right into the hands of Silicon Valley. They were able to say, we told you, 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 you let the government run this, and they're going to fuck it up. If you let the gang in Palo Alto do it, you could add 10 gov- you know healthcare.govs. It, it played into every ego myth these people have about their own Superiority, and you know that that the government you know is, isn't isn't helping anyone. Um, I mean, there's a lot of very uh, politically conservative uh, elements in that that the private sector will will solve all. So I mean, I thought that was that that was a, a, just such a such a shame because yeah, we in the in the country we have now, we're going to need government websites that can handle huge numbers of people. I don't even see that as necessary evil. I mean, that that's we need services that work that way. It'll help. It'll help a lot of people, and and I think you know now that it's working, it is helping a lot of people. That that whole thing was the the website was slandered; Uh, it it was used as as a propaganda device. Forget the Tea Party; that was as much a a win for the private sector of California as it was for you know the American political right.
1: Before you were at Valley Wag, you did a story about um, sex cam studios. I think people know what sex cam studios are, so I'm yeah. not going to try and describe. It's very that. easy to
2: find out if you, yeah.
1: want, if you want look it up. <laughs> it's on Google. Right. <laughs> um, and it was a, it's a pretty it's a pretty deep piece. Um, you really sort of dissect how the financial structures uh, of the sex cam studios work. Um, who are the kind of people um, who are who, who work in them and who are attracted to them, and you know the ways that they work in terms of money laundering. What that piece achieved for me was the piece isn't really a criticism of the sex cam industry, but it. I was like, wow, the sex cam industry is really fucked up it after is, I read it. It sure is. Yeah. And what you've done since then, a lot of the pieces are more telling you that it's fucked. I mean, do, have you, do you feel like you lose anything by ha- being so clearly opinionated and presenting things
2: more as opinion than sort of, than research? I miss writing that kind of, Stories, personally, um, I I think that when you're dealing with very obviously shady sex webcam websites, you aren't working against a prevailing culture that is pro-sex cam website. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I could present it and people, if anything, were biased against (laughs) international porn rings. Um, If I'm talking about Facebook... Or if I'm talking about Yahoo or any number of any companies, tech companies, big or small, the, the bias is so heavily for these things, as as social and economic goods made by the best and the brightest, that I do have to comp- I, I think I have to compensate, which means being, you know a, a demagogue, some kind. sometimes. I have to say, look, this guy's an asshole because they've spent years hearing this guy's a genius this guy's a gift a king among men you know so I mean I'm working with a pretty big handicap I think in terms of whatever every other depiction that people are used to um so I mean yeah it, it Wag is is more of a it, it can be a blunt instrument sometimes you know maybe it won't have to be maybe, maybe in the, in the very near future people will no longer be coming to the table with the expectation that, tech equals good, that software equals good, that programmers are the best and the brightest. In that case, you you could take a much subtler approach. For argument's sake, let's say they're as
1: bad or worse than you're portraying them to (laughs) be, but then you imagine you're not going to last long as an exec at one of these companies if you're like, hey, guys, I think actually we should start paying the city of san francisco some taxes that's going to be like the first nail in your coffin there are people who are dealing with these sort of heightened business structures that really are telling them make money at all costs um you know the some of the rhetoric is bullshit but when you take away the rhetoric they are in a a position where they are played in some ways into a corner in
2: terms of what being being accountable to, uh, being account- to shareholders? And- yeah,
1: I mean, I, when you look at the sort of larger structural issues, not the like crazy parties, but yeah. the stru- structural issues, like not paying the city of San Francisco taxes. Right. Advocating for the shareholder, you would say, "Well, if we, there's a way we can not pay taxes, let's not pay taxes."
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean that that's the same sleight of hand that literally any publicly traded company would use. You know, Exxon. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, it, any company that's doing something. Questionable, but making a lot of money in the process, will say, "Look, this is the way companies are. It's a truism. If you if you believe them,
1: you in a certain way, what you're arguing is that these the the people you you cover aren't unique. They're actually more like oil executives.
2: Absolutely, they, they they are they are they they have the the same basic mechanics and I think consciences as an oil company, but they're given this veneer." They get to have it both ways, which is be greedy but be adored by the public.
1: Are you friendly or are in contact with other people who cover the technology industry from a more uh, news perspective Absolutely. say like at the New York Times mm-hmm. I mean, what is it like when you sit down with a New York Times bits blog reporter sure. and you you know you're like, hey we both did a piece on Facebook this week. Like, what? what's the dialogue there like?
2: Those are some of my my closest friends and uh, biggest supporters of Valleywag. We have different jobs. The people at the Times are able to do stories that I could never do. Um, and it, I think it goes both ways. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it has meant the world to me that I've gotten such a supporting and, and appreciative uh, reception from you know, traditional journalists or bloggers or editors.
1: Do you have ambitions to... Jump those lines. Uh, like, what, what, where do you go from here? I'm,
2: I'm I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I I would like to do this until I don't want to do it anymore. Until you've uh, destroyed every last <laughs> reputation, right? Until we've moved back to uh to a subsistence farming uh economy. No, I mean, I look. My job is a lot of fun for certain reasons. Being uh, an editor at the New York Times is is a thrill of its own for a lot of reasons. Right. Those, those are just. I think they're very different. It's not that I, that I don't think what they're doing is good. Or important. I just think you need both, both voices. You
1: burn some bridges doing what you do. Does it worry you? Hey, uh, in a few years, when I'm sick of this, I will have burnt every uh, bridge in um, you know in all these industries. Right. I
2: mean, that's that's possible. Possible, and it, and it kept me up for a long time before I took this job. At this point, I am now confident I will not get a job at Facebook or Google or uh, you know, a venture capital firm. That's okay with me. Look, I I look at the people who I've respected the most, uh, working along with them at, at Gawker, and pe- you know, people who've left. You know, they go on to the New Yorker, to to Salon, to Vanity Fair. I mean, look at look at Richard Lawson. He was he was he was the the perfect uh, you know torturer of, of a lot of very prominent people, and, then, and now he's a job. At, he's a fantastic job at Vanity Fair, and he's. Still, one of the best writers who's writing every day. Um, yeah, I've I've burned bridges and closed avenues, and, and I would like to think mostly in jobs that I would have never gotten to begin with. Um, and that's yeah, that's fine. It'll be worth it to me. I hope.
1: Do you see? Yeah, ask me in a few, uh, a few yeah, years when we're I'm going to have you back on the show. <laughs> you yeah, uh, sleeping, uh, under, sleeping the, under the sleeping <laughs> under the bridge exactly, <laughs> ranting about Dave Morin. Right. But uh, uh, beyond actually the burnt bridges. Um, the site's been a hoax before, right? I mean, things that were later proven not to be true have been sort of supplied to the site and then had had to be pulled
2: back. In my time there, there's been one instance that I can think of, and it was that Google Bus protest. That right, right, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I can't think of any other times when we've posted something that's been just... Entirely false or well, fabricated. I, that
1: hoax like got like seventy eight thousand blogs, right. right? I mean, tell tell people what this hoax was. So right. there
2: there was a a video released uh, during one of the the uh, protests against Google's private bus system, uh, and there was a, a video that was uploaded, purporting to be a Google employee who got off of the bus and had a confrontation with one of the protesters and said a lot of uh, almost comically horrible things like well if you can't afford to live here just get out you know the city isn't for you um a lot of things to that uh, affect in retrospect it's kind of like someone like acting in an
1: improv show right it, it was as if like, you
2: had said like be as terrible as possible it's not just
1: <laughs> badly written it's like it's like written in a way like that like someone would have like kind of come up with like
2: 30 seconds before right. they said it that that was a case of me wanting something to be true yeah and i mean i look i, I don't want to Scapegoat. I mean, it, it, it was uploaded by someone who was a reporter in San. was a reporter in San Francisco and said that it was a Google employee got, who they saw got off the bus. But I take full responsibility. I should have been more skeptical. I should have waited for someone to corroborate that. Maybe the, the part that I find interesting about
1: it isn't that like you and all these other people got hoaxed, and like people are getting hoaxed all over the fucking internet sure. like all day, yeah. every day. It's that in some ways there's a sort of Outrage economy mm-hmm. on the web, oh, yeah. and I think that outrage economy goes both directions. There's a lot of people who want to be outraged about tech companies. There's also a lot of people who want to be outraged at people who are outraged at billionaires. Right. Know, there's there's uh, there's there's just a, a nice healthy fat turkey of outrage wherever you look for it. And part of what outrage does is it creates fuel for itself. Yeah. So it creates the kind of stories that corroborate the worldview of right. the people and that's getting more sophisticated mm-hmm. like i remember and like when i was um like working summers uh when i was in college and you'd go and like look at stuff on snopes and find out <laughs> it was fake and it was like that shit was pretty amateur right. like <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> like fake stuff on the internet right. was like more like Pranking your friends,
2: fake stuff
1: that then would spread around the world, but was very like easy to sort of locate. Well, in think
2: it. how quaint it was—you could even catalog it on one website. Right, right? Exactly.
1: There was like there was a database of all of the hoaxes right. at that point.
2: And now that outrage machine, it has a demand. Look, it, it, if if I post a story and I know that it's going to make a lot of people pissed off, that's not going to be a, a strike against it. I mean, sometimes the the the, the outrage economy functions because people are, are rightfully outraged. Do you have secrets yourself? I mean, does working
1: in, a, in an atmosphere where you're at times doing things like outing people, right. how
2: does it affect your own personal life? I mean, you, you have to think every day what would happen if what I'm doing right now appeared on the front page of Gawker. I mean, there's an old adage, uh, just, you know, you never send an email you don't want to see, you know, online.
1: Every time someone says that, I'm like, fuck, they didn't tell me that until like 10 right. years <laughs> into
2: email. <laughs> I only, I only heard that about a year ago. Yeah, I, I right. So, I mean, and, and I, and I especially trying to keep that in mind. Um, I, I had a really, I, I, <laughs> a, a, maybe not formative, but a very, a very you know, heavily influencing talk with John Cook when I first started doing, when I first restarted Valleywag and, you know, he made it clear, you know, you're, you're going to be under more scrutiny, Never before, you know. This, this is a guy who's had you know Fox News come after him, I and mean, he he knows what it's like to have the the the, the counter offensive. And you know, he said he said you know, the the best defense is just sort of living clean, you know. <laughs> and and I mean, I I of course I have secrets, I, and of course I'm not a completely open book because uh, yeah. I'm a I'm a human being. But I do think and second guess a lot of my a lot of my life now because I think, well, you know, what would happen if that? If that if that got out by someone like me.
1: I mean, have you had like, have you had something like that? Like, has it actually, like, have you made a decision in your life differently because,
2: because yes. of that? I've, I've made, I've made choices in my, in my personal life. There, there, there have been relationships that I have not pursued or whatever, uh, because I would not, because it would, it would it would not look good. Because they're people who operate within the realm of the world you operate in, or sure, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean in in I mean I'm thinking of like one particular case, yeah, which is a shame in in a way because I mean I, I you know you, you are very directly sacrificing a a personal uh, decision, something that would be a good thing otherwise, for your job. but I mean I, that's just the alternative is much, much more grim. And and uh, yeah, and that, that's that's meant foregoing uh, things that probably would have made me happy.
1: What what is your relationship like with with um, John Cook or Cook is gone now? Yeah, Max, Out, Max, Max Reed is outgoing is Max Reed, and yeah. and Nick Denton is is the the uh, the godfather of, of the um, operation. Yeah, um, and I would really like to get him on the show. If you're listening, Nick Denton, please come on the show. Oh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll pass that on. Um, I've sent him. I've sent him, Nick. I've sent you an email. <laughs> Why, why you not writing me back? <laughs> um, no, but I'm interested in like when someone is is who who has who's been doing this for longer than you is sort of uh, jumping you into the gang. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what kind of advice does someone like that give?
2: You have to be willing to have people say really horrible things about you all the time. You you have to get some pretty thick calluses. Um, I mean. I don't. I cannot imagine a, a form of invective that has not been uh, used against Nick Denton. What What is the worst thing that you remember someone saying about you? It's, I think it was actually, it might have been worse when I was at Gizmodo, because people really fucking care about their phones. Yeah, it's like funny, people, it's,
1: it's funny, you like reveal someone's affair, it's not nearly as strong yeah. as like a Android opinion. Oh yeah, I
2: mean, I, I, would, I would get, people would say the, the most vile things about me when I wrote a bad review of a Samsung phone, <laughs> and and now it's, it, it's, it's more focused, you know? right. but, it, but I, I don't get the same like fucking kill yourself, faggot, like I would get emails like that about a phone. Yeah. I got used to it early is what I'm saying.
1: So- I mean, there's a sort of a flip side to working in an atmosphere like this that I think is interesting for um, for writers and, and people who listen to the show. Which is Gawker is very open with metrics. I think you can just go pretty much go online and, and look at all of the sites and all of the individual
2: writers, mm-hmm. which
1: is always fascinating to be. You go to
2: quantcast.com. Be, uh, slash whatever gawker site you want to look up, there's full traffic information about them all.
1: In a way, it's sort of like putting writing on the sort of uh, quantified self movement early by, <laughs> by, by doing yeah. that. And you've now been, you know, you've been now getting weighed in uh, every day for what, three or four years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does being able to see stuff like traffic um, and, and see like how people react to your writing and the comments and stuff. How has that affected what you write? I mean, has it been a way that you've tried to improve
2: oh, man. your writing? Well, it, it's tough because I don't know any other way. My first job was writing for Gawker. And so I, I don't know what it's like to not be able to see how every single thing you write does I'm, with scare quotes. I, I mean, of course there are going to be art stories that, don't get a lot of hits but i know are important and conversely there are going to be posts that are monster traffic nuclear bombs but are about trivial shit that's just you know the, the 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 mystery hand of the internet at work i i know that if i if there's a story that i'm that i'm proud of that other people are 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 really into and and appreciate and it's good work and it doesn't perform well, I'm able to divorce myself from that. Um, I, but I, I don't think that it really affects what I do. I mean, I think that there's a perception of Gawker uh, where, like, we're getting constant, like, printouts of, of what, what's working. And it's, like, you know, more stories about, you know, people with brown hair, you know, yeah. like we're getting these, these very finely tuned, um, uh, you know, carrot and stick kind of thing. It informs what I write for sure, but it does not determine it. People talk about writing things with the hope that people will read them as if that's a bad thing as if as if not every fucking writer since the history of 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 the written or spoken word has wanted an audience otherwise I'd be at home
1: that's why I bring it up it's interesting because uh, a lot of people who've been on the show who write mm-hmm. for print magazines and then who who then um, sort of trickle the stories onto the web have almost no insight into the success or failures of stories they've done from a from a traffic perspective, or just really like how what they're doing um, plays into the larger um, company well, that they're a part of. Uh,
2: well, right as as far as as far as their own f- you know, fortune and future at the company, I don't know, but you know, with Twitter now, everyone can get right. immediate feedback. You know, if if you write for a magazine that has no internet presence, I mean, I'm not even sure what that w- would be, but if, if you if you're not getting traffic feedback. For your job, you can sure as hell get Twitter feedback. You can, you know, you're either, you're either starting a conversation or you're not.
1: Is it difficult to operate um, in that kind of an environment without like an editor, like a sort of a strong editorial voice, you know, above you saying like, we want you to do this. Do you, do you see yourself as your own editor?
2: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think people don't get how much autonomy there is at Gawker, which, which Mm is almost complete autonomy. The very few of the stories you see on Gawker are there because someone said write this.
1: When you say I want to write this, and you're out there, and you know you've got a great story, and mm-hmm. it's something you like really believe in, and you're like fuck, I just I don't know how I can make this better. How, how do you? I mean, how, well, we where have do
2: Who who are always there to work on a story with start. you? So um, they
1: don't assign it, but if you bring a story yes. in, it does get
2: That's line level right. edited. Yes.
1: Transitioning from doing like a samsung review (laughs) to doing like
2: a feature story about like cam studios like what is that like from a prose level it is one of the most rewarding things ever i've ever gone through i mean i I, people people complain so much about getting rewritten i love i love it when something doesn't look like it did when i when i turned it in because i know it's better goes without saying that i feel better about those things that were edited and that i put you know my heart into versus a phone review I think that's as good a place to end as any.
1: <laughs> showing, showing some uh, heart and passion. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for coming in, My Sam pleasure. Piddle. Thanks for having me. Um, we'll see you again in a few years. <laughs> I'll, be, uh, I'll be shaking a,
2: a Styrofoam cup full of change outside your office.
1: Hey, there, you wouldn't be—you wouldn't be alone. <laughs> and that was the long-form podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My guest was Sam Biddle. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern is Sarah Button. Our intravid sponsor is Tiny Letter. We'll be back here next week.
0: Why do you run?